Hi, this is Bill Whalen, the host of Goodfellows. Thanks for listening to the audio version of the show, but we wanted to let you know that Goodfellows is primarily a video production, and you're missing a lot of extra features by only listening to our show. Give it a look by going to hoover.org forward slash Goodfellows to see what you're missing. Thanks. It's a witch hunt. It's just a continuation of a witch hunt. They want to silence you. They want to silence you. And they mean silence, because I have four of them now, if you look. I mean, this is not even possible. Four over the next last couple of months. It's Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. I have to report that we have our full complement of Goodfellows with us today. That includes the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran from an undisclosed location somewhere deep in the heart of Texas, and of course, our resident uh, eternal optimist, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. And joining us today uh, for a conversation about the law and the 2024 election is Andy McCarthy. Andy is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, a National Review contributing editor and author of the book, Ball of Confusion, The Plot to Rig an Election to Destroy a Presidency. Andy McCarthy also once served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which makes him the ideal guest to discuss the collision of America's political and legal systems, how justice is being applied in the campaign season, how this affects both the 2024 election and America's global reputation. Andy McCarthy, welcome to Goodfellows. Oh, this is such a treat, Bill. Thank you so much. I'm I'm a huge fan, and uh, there are some episodes I can only listen to once, but I get to them at least once. So it's great to be here. Well, the feelings mutual, my friend. We're all big admirers. You're writing. Uh, there's a lot to get into. I know we want to talk about the specifics in the Trump trial. Uh, we want to talk about the uh, ongoing investigation. And uh, Mr. Biden, I know you have strong sentiments about the special counsel. Uh, but first, I'd like to pose a big question to you, Andy, which is something along the lines of this. If one of these trials with Donald Trump begins next March, let's say, that is peak primary system, um, the peak primary time in America, that would seem very unfair to candidate Trump. I would also argue, Andy, it may be even more unfair to the men and women running against him. Good luck getting any attention if the cameras are all following Donald Trump into a courtroom. On the other side of the aisle, there's a question about how vigorous the investigation will be into the president's son. Uh, slow walking, this has been uh, an MO of this so far. If uh, it is slow walk through 2024, Republicans will cry cover up. On the other hand, if the special counsel pulls a Comey and does something in October before the election, announces he's reopening an investigation, Democrats will cry foul. So here's the question, Andy. Is what we're looking at right now, is this a set of circumstances unique to the relative failings of Donald Trump and Joe Biden? Or is there a bigger problem here? And I ask this as a very loaded question because I ask this as a very lowly campaign aide working for George H.W. Bush in 1992 when four days before the election, Lawrence Walsh, the special counsel, in his six-year the Iran-Contra investigation, indicted Cap Weinberger four days before the election. So, Andy, your thoughts? Well, I do think you're seeing uh, a couple of features of the American system uh, that are uh, that have changed a great deal over time, uh, particularly the infusion of politics at the state level as a feature of the of the uh, criminal justice system. In the federal system, um, we appoint prosecutors. Uh, in most of the states, uh, they are elected positions. And I think what you're seeing here is a dynamic where it's actually good politics for the Democratic prosecutors in 
big cities like uh, New York, uh, Atlanta, to indict Trump, regardless of whether they actually get him convicted or not. The, the politics locally for them not only breaks well, but it's not necessarily the same politics as it is on the national level and what the Biden administration uh, is dealing with. So um, you have this strange crash in the system between uh, the local politics and what I think the Justice Department would like to accomplish at the national level. And then there's another layer to it that I think hasn't gotten enough attention, which may go exactly to um, what you're talking about in terms of whether he, Trump can get a fair trial. Mm -hmm. You know, when I did um, I, I did mafia cases for a long time where we had people in custody, but the defense lawyers would demand to have a year or more to prepare for trial because there was simply too much discovery and the cases were too complex, particularly when they were multi defendant cases. And the same thing was true of terrorism cases. We would have people in custody for a year and a half or more, uh, and yet uh, they would insist on an extensive period of time to get prepared for trial. Um, here, Trump is being rushed to trial in not one but four criminal cases, at least if the prosecutors have their druthers. And then, Bill, I think that there's um, a layer of civil litigation that hasn't gotten enough attention, but that could be very damaging to Trump, as we've already seen this year in connection with the case he had uh, involving E. Jean Carroll, the, uh, the journalist. Beyond the four criminal cases, Trump has a major uh, civil fraud trial brought by New York State Attorney General Letitia James that begins trial on October 3rd. I mean, you want to talk about the, you know, the the commencements of the, of the primaries and the lead up to the uh, right. or the commencement of the debates and the lead up to the primaries. That case could go a number of weeks. This is the case that the New York prosecutors tried to make for years going up to the Supreme Court a couple of times to get his financial records. The prosecutors passed it up, but um, uh, the AG brought it as a civil case. Then on January 15th, we have E. Jean Carroll part two, uh, because Trump being Trump, as soon as he was found guilty or found liable in the first civil trial, he went out and basically repeated the defamation that he had just been found guilty of, and she promptly sued him again. Uh, so that case is going to trial on January 15th. And then on the 29th, um, also a federal case in the Southern District of New York, my old haunts in Manhattan, a two to four week trial on a civil fraud scheme, a, a, what's alleged to be a pyramid scheme. So the thing with these civil cases is, unlike the, the criminal cases where the government is coming at you, in the civil case, you're actually expected to participate. And if you don't, the wages of that are are very bad. So we saw in, in the E. Jean Carroll case, Trump didn't participate, didn't show up, didn't testify. In a civil case, unlike the criminal case, the judge will instruct the jury that if you don't testify, you can you can construe that against the defendant, that if he had an innocent explanation, he would have given it to you. Um, he's got a lot to lose in the uh, in the October trial, which where they're basically trying to put his organization out of business. And then you have these other two cases as well. So I think before you even get to the criminal prosecutions, 
which I don't see starting before the spring. Um, he's he's already going to have uh, you know a great deal of litigation, a lot to prepare for, probably a lot of testimony, perhaps a couple of big losses where you know if he loses these cases, they're uh, financially harmful to him. But I but I also think the political implications of them are more than or are apt to be more than we've factored in. So it's a, it's a big uh, he's under a big burden. Andy, I have a question. Uh, is it sort of political death uh, by uh, a thousand uh, counts or 91 to be precise? Or does this guarantee that Trump gets the nomination because he's in the news seven days a week from here on until election day? I, I can't really figure that out. On the one side, it clearly is going to cost him time and money, a lot of money. Uh, on the other hand, it's airtime, it's it's publicity on a scale that he didn't have in 2016. So which, how do you see this in terms of its net costs and benefits? I think it gets him, the bottom line, Neil, is I think it gets him the nomination and then he gets killed in the general election. And the reason I say that is there's a there's a dynamic to the, especially the criminal litigation process, which is working to Trump's benefit and to uh, actually to the benefit of the Democrats who I think want to run against Trump in November. Uh, the way this works, the charges come out uh, in these indictments, and I think they've had the effect of not only ginning up Trump's political base, which is probably a third or more of the Republican base, and it's very solid for him. Uh, but the other the other problem is is what you allude to, which is it's not only free publicity for him. The other GOP candidates can't get any traction with the voters. They're constantly asked about Trump right at the moment. They're trying to introduce themselves to the country. Uh, Trump's troubles are, are blowing up and they don't get to to really make their own personal connection to the point that I think Trump is now choreographing this. So, for example, tomorrow we have the first big debate uh trump decided he could have picked any day in the in the last two weeks he's decided to surrender and be processed in atlanta on thursday which will step on anyone's momentum coming out of of wednesday night so there is a way of gaming this but i i think that he's a prohibitive favorite right now to get the nomination uh this plays into his hands but the thing is the way this works within I'd say about eight months, at least one of these cases will go to trial, maybe more. Mm. Uh, and the trials and the hearings is where all the bad stuff comes out, you know, where all the evidence comes out, the very damaging documents, the the compelling testimony. And the audience at that point is not the Republican electorate. It's the broader general electorate where at his high watermark, he never did better than 46 and that's before the Capitol riot and before all the stuff that happened, uh, post 2020 election. Uh, so they're going to, that information is going to come out and I think they're just going to kill him. I don't think people have any idea how bad this will be about a year from now. So that, that means I'm interested, uh, in my, to, to hear if that means you think there is something in here that will resonate uh, with middle America beyond sort of conspiracy to mishandle documents. But the deeper question I'd like you to go after, I'm, I'm troubled 
not just, I don't think this is just the particular personality of Donald J. Trump, which once he's gone, we're back to kumbaya. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an increasing involvement of the justice system in politics and presidential politics, especially. Uh, you know, in just in recent history, we can go back to Comey and Hillary's laptop and then not Hillary's laptop and then Hillary's laptop again. The Mueller probe, the Russia hoax, um, censorship of the Internet of, is is part of it. Um, district attorney, uh, sorry, various um, uh, uh, federal judges issuing nationwide injunctions on policies they don't like. Um, Presidential politics is more and more done with the involvement of the justice system. It's pretty clear both of these guys need to win the election to stay out of jail. We'll, we'll get to <laughs> in a minute. And that's very dangerous. In, in Pakistan, you lose an election and there will be conspiracy to defame the prophet or something of the sort. And you go straight to jail and your family loses their business and they go after you. The result is you do everything in your power not to lose elections. Um, so I, I'm very troubled, and I, and I hope you'll comment on this, uh, by the increasing involvement, not just at the prosecution level, but the whole uh, operation of the Department of Justice level with and seen as increasingly an arm of presidential politics. Well, I think it's been catastrophic for the country. Uh, it, this will be the third straight cycle where we've had um, the Justice Department deeply involved in presidential politics, uh, in electoral politics. It's had, to my mind, the, the, the worst consequence of it has been to national security. Uh, and it's, it, it, that's not one that's real easy to see. But, but I think right now, if you were to have a vote in Congress on whether to reauthorize FISA, you might lose. In fact, I think there's a very good chance you would lose. And the the reason for it is that there's a perception, especially on the not just on the Trump right, I think more broadly on the on the center right, uh, that those powers, these national security powers can't be uh, that the people who are uh, authorized to wield them can't be trusted anymore. Right. Uh, and as a result, you're, we could have the consequence of making the country much more difficult to defend um, because the the I, I always felt after uh, having spent a number of years doing kind of conventional criminal law cases that in doing terrorism cases, it really hammers you over the head uh, that that's the one area of our law where the government really has to be able to look you in the eye and say, you can trust us with these powers, because if you can't maintain secrecy uh, and you can't maintain the security of, of methods and sources of intelligence, we simply can't protect the country. So I think the worst thing about the Russiagate fiasco, I mean, it's terrible what happened to Trump and and obviously his, uh, his government was hamstrung for a couple of years. Um, but I think for the country, the worst thing was that of all the powers the FBI could have used or abused in order to carry out that scheme, they chose the national security powers, which, you know, not only are the worst thing to abuse, but they actually have to be reauthorized periodically. So I would not be surprised if at the end of this year you're going to see a stripping back uh, of some of those authorities. And that's terrible for the country because it's not like we give these powers to the FBI because we think they're great guys and they're honorable. We hope we get that. 
But we give those powers because we need to protect the United States. And if we decide that the, the people wielding them can't be trusted with the powers, that doesn't make that doesn't make the United States that doesn't make the threats to us any less profound. It just makes it more difficult for us to to protect against them. As far as your your broader question, John, I'm a I'm an adherent to um, Bill Barr's dictum that um, if you're going to if the Justice Department is going to uh, intrude itself into electoral politics, it ought to be over what he called a meat and potatoes crime. That is to say something that's a real serious offense that you can prove by compelling evidence. And then I think that the public generally thinks anybody would be prosecuted for, you know, something that's serious. Now, you could say that imposing a standard like that effectively puts people above the law. I don't believe that's true. I think that in every case, you you have exercises of prosecutorial discretion. And there's all kinds of reasons that prosecutors don't bring cases. Uh, many of them are a lot less important than whether we've insulated our uh, electoral system from the possibility that the incumbent government will put its thumb on the scale uh, and use the intelligence and law enforcement apparatus of the government uh, against its political enemies. I think it's really important to the country, and we're losing this, it's really important to the country uh, that that is a norm that that's protected, that we don't do that in this country. And I think more and more people are convinced that we precisely do that in this country. Um, I, I think it's been a very bad development. Mm -hmm. um, the problem that Barr, I, I think the problem with, with uh, Barr trying to implement what he preached is that you can't have unilateral disarmament. Uh, politically speaking, you can't have one side that says we're not going to do this and then expect that the the constituencies of that side are going to be satisfied when the other party gets in power and they immediately start to to do it again. And we see, you know, suppression right. on social media, uh, these prosecutions throughout the country, some and and the prosecutions in this case that you referred to run the gamut, I think, from the very serious, which to me would be not only the Mar-a-Lago documents, but what that really is about, which is obstruction of the grand jury, which anyone in America would be prosecuted for, for flouting a grand jury subpoena. And then on the other side, you have this ridiculous case that's been brought by the Manhattan district attorney who won't prosecute actual criminals in Manhattan, um, where the where the streets have gotten considerably less safe in the last 10 years. Yeah, there's a lot of Republican um, city district attorneys ready to go after Biden's. Anyway, it's HR's turn. Yeah, sorry, but Well, no, hey, Andy, what, this is really clarifying a lot for me. I mean, I think there are really two areas we're talking about. One is is early lack of confidence that the judicial and our legal system uh, will stay out of politics. And then the other are concerns about you know, about citizens' privacy. And this is, you know, the 702 provision of the of the FISA uh, Act. And, and um, and, you know, of course, we have a crisis in both these areas. I mean, I'll tell you, when I was National Security Advisor, I mean, uh, you know, getting the president to sign, uh, you know, re reauthorize 702 was not an easy thing to do, even even back then. Now it's even worse. I mean, I yeah, I, I would like to, your thoughts on how warranted do you think the concerns are, you know, over infringements on, on privacy and also intervention in, in, in politics 
and what you think the path might be back. You know, at, at Hoover, we have this new center that's been established on 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 American institutions and trying to strengthen them. What, what do you see as the path back to to regain confidence in you know in our judicial branch, the legal process, due process of law in these two areas of privacy and uh, and, and in in po- politics? HR, this is going to be counterintuitive, but I, I've never been a fan of FISA. And I think the closer you get to it, the more you see that structurally it can't work. And the reason is, I think foreign intelligence collection is innately an executive responsibility and a political responsibility. The court was brought into it um, essentially because of the spy scandals of the uh, of the Watergate era and COINTELPRO in the in the seventies. And I I don't think it was a good idea. Justice Jackson uh, in the 1950s, Jackson, who had been like an iconic figure, not only in the executive branch, but the judiciary as as a member of the Supreme Court, um, writes a decision in the 1950s that basically says the judiciary has no place getting involved in intelligence collection um, because there's no there's nothing about being a lawyer, even a really smart lawyer that gives you particular expertise in that area. Um, so it's out of their ken. They've tried to address that by having one specialized court that hears all the cases. So you, the idea is that if you husband that all in one place, uh, that they'll develop that expertise. But the second thing Jackson said, I don't think there's ever been an answer for, which is that in a free republic, the most important decisions made by the body politic are about their about their security and that those decisions need to be made by people who answer to the people whose lives are at stake and when you di- when you divert those to the judiciary not only are they not being made by by people who answer to the public the, the judiciary being the branch that we intentionally intentionally insulate from politics but what you get, and I've seen this in, in terrorism litigation, what you get is a ratcheting up of due process for people who want to mass murder Americans, uh, but, the, but the country is not made safer by the process. And I think the other thing we've now seen in connection with Russiagate is that the court is not institutionally competent to do with what it's being asked to do, which is to oversee the FBI in carrying out FISA on the on the domestic level. They're simply not they're not equipped. If the bureau brings them a surveillance application, they are not in a position to to do an investigation of whether the bureau is leveling with them or not. So, so Andy, I, Andy, then then what's what's the solution then? So what I'm thinking is, is you're arguing maybe to some extent for giving the executive branch those authorities without having to go to the court uh, to be able to, for example, um, understand what the nexus is between a person of interest abroad who might be a threat to the United States and a U.S. citizen, because there isn't really, you know, I don't have much confidence in the executive branch not overreaching, because that's where the problem was, right, with the unmasking yeah. uh, requests, which, by the way, you know, I was National Security Advisor for 13 months, never submitted one unmasking request. So I think there was really an issue with that uh, in, yeah. in the previous administration. So, but but so, how do you give the executive branch the authority it needs while protecting individual rights and rights to privacy without the courts? Yeah. So what I would do is is two things. Uh, 
I am the last person on the planet saying that they don't need oversight. I think the problem is the oversight they have is ineffective. So we have to figure out a way to make it effective. I think that can only be done by Congress and that they have to stand up a, a, a robust oversight capacity over intelligence collection. I would get the court out of it. And then the other thing, which does me no uh, pleasure to, to say, because I used to be uh, rabidly on the other end of this position, but I would I would I would take away the FBI's national security mission, the foreign counterintelligence mission, and give it to a separate intelligence agency that doesn't have police authority. So I I, I used to argue uh, in the heyday of our counterterrorism in the 90s that it was more efficient to do it our way than the way the Brits did it, where they had separate organizations. I used to think that having both the law enforcement mission and the foreign counterintelligence mission under the same roof at the FBI would allow them more efficiently to to leverage each other. And given that the 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 immediate threat to the country was jihadist terrorism, that seemed to me to be prudent. Um, I think we've now seen what I what I said could never happen has happened, which is that they have abused their the bureau has abused its foreign counterintelligence authority to maintain a case when they didn't have a, a basis to conduct a criminal investigation, which was the whole reason that, hypothetically, that was why the the Clinton Justice Department put the wall in back in the 90s over this fear that the surveillance of the the foreign counterintelligence side would drive criminal investigations when you didn't have criminal evidence. Um, I always thought it was absurd to think that would happen because you had to go through so many hoops to get FISA authorization that it would be more rational for a rogue agent to make up a basis to do a criminal investigation than try to make up a, a national security angle to go through FISA. But I think obviously in the in the Russiagate thing, that's exactly what they did. And maybe that's because headquarters took over the investigation. So when headquarters decides to break the rules, there's no one there to tell them no. But whatever the reason is, it obviously didn't work. Um, so I, I would I take away their mission and give it to a, an actual intelligence agency with no police authority. Andy, can I jump in? It's always music to my ears when an American admits that the Brits do something better. Uh, but I want to <laughs> bring us back to your earlier point about the political consequences of the lawfare against Trump. Let me push back a bit. I think the key voters are a relatively small number of independent voters in a relatively small number of counties in a relatively small number of states. And I think those voters uh, will look increasingly skeptically at Joe Biden the more they learn about uh, the antics of his son Hunter and uh, the president's involvement in those. Uh, are there meat and potatoes involved here, to go back to your meat and potatoes uh, analogy? That's what I can't quite figure out. And what's the significance of the appointment of David Weiss, a special prosecutor, in the investigation of, of Hunter Biden? Am I right in suspecting that this smells bad and that the smell is going to reach the nostrils of those key voters. And some of them will start to say, you know, say what you like about Trump. Joe's no better. 
Amtrak Joe's no better. There's just sleaze on both sides. So maybe we should stop holding it against Trump. Am I right in thinking that that could happen? And I'd like to add what? to Neil's questions before he answer because sure. there's, a, there's a bunch of issues involving this. Um, in both cases, I'll give you my view. Trump, Trump is not obviously guilty of something criminal. He's guilty of violating his oath of office to defend the Constitution. And that's that's not a criminal act. We're trying to manufacture some criminal act. That's an act that, you know, the voters should look at and say, well, you know, you violated your oath, you shouldn't be in again. In the Biden case, um, the, involving the law is also a problem because now, of course, it's a special counsel. We can't talk about anything. What's needed here is not so much if Biden took money, we need to know that fact. And the whole fact-finding investigation of it is now stymied because it is under the law. One of the aspects of legalizing it is we don't get the democratic process of finding out, did the big guy take 10 grand and let the voters in time judge, not whether he should get you know some criminal action for it, but is the guy we want in the, in the office next time, the guy who took 10 grand for the big guy. And by making it legal, we don't get to see those facts. So, or again, at least until it goes to trial, John. Until it goes to trial, yeah. Well, which will be which will be slow walked or whatever. But we need anything, even a trial, doesn't get you the level of fact and political discourse of just investigation. What happened? Get it out. Let us know. It's actually a funny way of of stopping the facts from getting out. So, it's your opinions on Biden and also on whether the legal system is the right way to find out about what's going on with Biden. They seem to be, by the way, they are acting as if they are guilty because <laughs> yeah, if well, you were innocent, you would want to get those facts out immediately. Yeah. Well, I think the first, the, the stench that Neil detects is uh, spoiled um, meat and potatoes, I think, um, <laughs> because the way that uh, Weiss, who has had this case since 2000. 18 the way he has investigated it he has failed ever to indict the case even here we are three or four weeks whatever it is after the plea deal with with hunter blew up in court and he never filed the indictment um the reason that's significant is the way that you stop the statute of limitations from running in criminal proceedings is by filing charges if you don't file charges then the statute of limitations eat your case so I think quite intentionally at this point, just to do the math, the statute of limitations for the relevant tax charges is six years. For every other federal crime that's relevant, it's five years. So already, basically every potential tax charge prior to August of 2017 is gone, which includes all of the, th the three years of this scheme, uh, as it's been described when Joe Biden was vice president in the Obama administration. That is to say, the most serious potential corruption charges are no longer prosecutable because Weiss has let the statute run. Uh, and almost everything that's prior to 2018 or August 2018 uh, is gone. So if you're talking about bribery, money laundering, uh, foreign agent registration violations and the like, those are going to be very hard to prosecute at this point because he didn't charge the case. Now, the idea that um, the, the special counsel appointment is theater. Um, Weiss all along has been conducting this case as if his mission was to shield Biden, President Biden, um, from potential problems, not just criminal liability, but 
but political liability. Uh, he's the only Trump appointed U.S. attorney to be retained uh, after Biden fired all the rest of him of them when he took office. He got confirmed because he had the support of the two Biden allied Democratic senators in Delaware. Without that, he would never have been uh, made U.S. attorney. And his tickets to remaining U.S. attorney has been to keep this case, but not charge it. Uh, as long as that has gone on, he gets to he gets to keep his job. So this whole idea of um, of special counsel um, is a function of Garland, the attorney general, um, essentially trying to convince the country that the idea was that if Weiss had only come to him and asked for special counsel authority, then he could file cases in any jurisdiction. Apparently, uh, because of Hunter's uh, where Hunter lives and where he pays his taxes, the only places properly that you could bring the cases would be Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., where uh, Weiss doesn't have authority because he's the U.S. attorney for Delaware. But that's actually the way things work in the Justice Department. We have turf battles all the time between U.S. attorneys. One U.S. attorney can't block another U.S. attorney from bringing a case. What happens is you go to the Justice Department, you argue it out, and then the attorney general or the deputy attorney general say uh, to the U.S. attorneys in the in the in say Washington and Los Angeles in this instance, work with Weiss and bring the case. Uh, that didn't happen here because Weiss knew that he wasn't supposed to ask to be given authority to charge these cases out of the district because there was no desire to charge the cases out of the district. And we, what we now know based on the reporting over the weekend is that notwithstanding how appalling the terms of the plea offer that blew up a couple of weeks ago were Weiss's intention actually was to drop the entire case without charges. And the only reason that that, idea fell apart was because the whistleblower IRS agents came forward uh, and testified. And at that point, it was politically untenable to just drop the case. So ever since then, they've been putting their little heads together because this is supposed to be an adversarial process. But in this case, you have the Biden private attorneys are working with the Biden Justice Department to figure out, is there some vehicle that we can have where Hunter pleads to something where he doesn't, it's not too serious. He doesn't have to go to prison. Uh, and at the same time, we can hold our heads up that we prosecuted him and give him sweeping immunity for anything else uh, and then call it a day. The issue is and not whether Hunter Biden goes to jail or not, which we don't care about. The issue is, are, do we have an investigation into corruption at the higher level, or is this all shoved into and slow walked into, a, 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 into the justice system? And, and what I'm saying, John, is that if... It, it may not be a perfect vehicle for the House Oversight Committee to do it, but they're the only game in town. And they're actually doing a very good job uh, with the limited investigative resources they have. I mean, look, all things considered, it's always better for the Justice Department to do an investigation because they have more ways to obtain information. But if you have a corrupted process at the Justice Department, the only way that we're ever going to get any accountability is 
what's happening now, which is the Oversight Committee is pursuing this investigation. The, the Justice Department now can say, well, there's an investigation ongoing. We can't talk. We can't do anything. Right. So that- well, that's what the, that's what they've been doing anyway. But there is as a practical matter, there is no investigation. If there were an investigation, two things, you'd already have an indictment because someone would be concerned about the fact that the case was disappearing. Uh, and secondly, if you actually had an ongoing investigation into bribery and money laundering, you would never in the middle of that ongoing investigation give one of the main subjects of the investigation a plea deal to misdemeanor tax violations. You just it would never, ever happen. So there is no real investigation at the Justice Department, which is something, by the way, that Congress that in and of itself, Congress should be looking into. But. Uh, I don't think you're ever going to get any. The only way that we're going to unfold this whole thing is by allowing Comer to do his work. And I think that includes, you know, it looks like we're about to have a controversy or, over whether there should be uh, an impeachment inquiry mm-hmm. or not. And to my mind, I don't think they have the votes for an impeachment inquiry. The Republicans only have a four vote margin in the house and there are a lot of people who are very hanky about the whole idea of doing that um and sensibly i think they would actually say you know you have no chance of impeaching biden because it would be shut down in the senate no matter what happened in the house i would just let comer do what he's doing because at this point i think that's the that's the best way of uh of getting to the bottom of this. Andy, final question. I know you have to go. Um, for all the politicians in Washington who are complaining about this on both sides of the aisle, don't they need to take a look in the mirror? And I ask in this regard, if you're a Democrat and you're worried about Joe Biden getting caught up in legal entanglements, run Gavin Newsom against him in a primary. Run Gretchen, run Gretchen Whitmer. I'm sorry to all you Robert F. Kennedy Jr. fans out there, but he doesn't have serious opposition. On the Republican side, Andy, if you think Donald Trump is Jean Valjean being persecuted, you had a chance to end this back uh, when he was impeached the second time around. And what did Senate Republicans do? They didn't convict him. Why? They're afraid about getting primaried. So we have a situation where there is now a legal approach to what should have been a political situation, correct? Yeah, I I wish I had time to sit and listen to you guys bat that around because I, I must say um, we're in a situation where 70% of the country does not want a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And yet in a country of 335 million people, some of them extraordinarily gifted people, we're going to give them round two of Biden and Trump. And at a certain point, I think you have to ask yourself, if if you know what the public wants in that regard or how the public feels about that, and yet this is what you serve them up, Something is is very wrong with the system. Something is very wrong with the way that we're structured. You got to go and, and vote for someone else. <laughs> yeah, but but I, you know, look, it, it, as I said before, just the way that the criminal justice system is being gamed in this is precisely, you know, from the Democrats perspective to get to get Trump uh, nominated and then to run against him in the election because they're sure they can beat him and they're afraid that he, that. He is the only candidate that Biden can beat because Biden is almost equally unpopular. It's a, and yet it doesn't seem this. It doesn't seem that we're able to figure out a way to get out of this rut. And I, I just don't know what the answer to that is. Well, why don't we explore the answer another show? Andy, come back on the show soon, will you? I sure will. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys. Well, thanks for coming thanks. on. Take care. It's my pleasure. 
Guys, that was uh, interesting and depressing. And, and the question I want to ask the two of you is um, it's not just about Trump versus Biden. As, as I see it, I'm, I'm very discouraged. I see us heading straight like lemmings over a cliff to a constitutional crisis. Imagine Trump win this, wins this election. Uh, you can imagine what the other side. I mean, both sides will feel with some good reason that the other one, that the one who wins is illegitimate. Not just we lost, but this was an illegitimate election. Uh, you know what the Trumpers will think if Biden wins, that uh, government censorship, perversion of the justice system, they went after our guy, it it was, un and they hid the whole uh, Hunter Biden business by control of the media and the justice system. Not only is he illegitimate, but the system is rigged against you illegitimate. That's not a very healthy feeling. If Trump wins, God knows what's going to happen on, on the left. I mean, they were the resistance, not my president, the whole institutional uh, structure uh, arrayed against uh, against the president, and they'll they'll both be right. Uh, Trump did, you know, whether he did something criminal or not, he 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 was violated his oath of office pretty badly on the way out, and uh, I think the other the, the uh, Trumpers have a point too. So the the that fundamental feeling of illegitimacy, I think that leads you straight to constitutional crisis. Uh, where, where half of the country feels that the president is deeply illegitimate and, and that justifies all sorts of horrible things. Mm -hmm. Am I right to be this depressed? Yeah, I think you're right to be this depressed, John. And, I, you know, I'm the optimist in the crowd, right? So I, I think, you know, I, I think it is, you, you, I, this is the ultimate issue, right, is, is our confidence in our democratic institutions and, and processes and the, and the election you know, right at the top of that list in terms of the processes that we should have confidence in. And what, what is disturbing is that really there's this crisis of confidence in all branches of government now, right? I used to think that, you know, of course, the judiciary, the legal system, you know, the, the criminal justice system, you know, we, we should all have confidence in due process of, of law. I still have confidence uh, in it, but I think that that because there have been these abuses, because there have been these failings, that, that it gives people an opportunity to just kind of pile on to criticisms and and to sort of give up, you know, that the that these institutions can't be reformed. You know, we've, you know, we we talked, gosh, maybe two years ago, I guess, about about uh, uh, with Yuval Levin on 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 Congress, uh, and, and what a disaster, a crisis of confidence in, in Congress, right? And and then with no no confidence in the executive because you doubt the legitimacy of the elected president. Okay, that's terrible. And this is exactly what our enemies want. I mean, this is what Russia was trying to do. In the 2016 election, they didn't give a damn. The Kremlin didn't give a damn who got elected. What they really wanted is to ensure that large numbers of Americans doubted the legitimacy of the election. And so, I think you're right. This is this should be issue and concern, you know, problem number one that we're that we're discussing and and hopefully can avert. Neil, but I, I wrote a book about a dozen years ago called The Great Degeneration, uh, and one of its arguments was that the rule of law itself was in decay. Uh, in the United States. And I think that book is standing up very well. I think you're right, John, to be worried. I still cling to the hope that the two political parties will realize that they are on a kind of strange uh, collision course with candidates that they should drop. I still can't quite imagine we're going to rerun 2020 in 2024. 
So I cling to the hope that one or both parties will blink. When you think about it, it's just a huge gamble that the Democrats have engaged in to use the, the lawfare to ensure that Trump gets the nomination in the expectation that they can beat him. And as I've said consistently, this, this just assumes far too much certainty, not least about the economic situation in the country next year, which, as you know, John, may not be nearly as good as it is today. Uh, if uh, the effects of higher interest rates start to feed through to larger and larger sections uh, of the population. So I think the only way out of this collision, this disastrous constitutional crisis that you're talking about, is for one or both parties to blink and and, uh, get another candidate up there. So it's not too late for that to happen. Yeah, I, I don't think we should underestimate what 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 effective leadership can deliver in terms of bringing us back together, right? In many ways, We've seen examples of anti-leadership in recent years. So, you know, let's hope for something different. A simple mind-the-store competence would be just fine at this stage. I mean, what I worry about is not so much one guy winning or the other guy losing, but the sense of the, the sense in a democracy is the losers have to accept we lost, but the president is the legitimate president. The justice system is, uh, is I, I submit to the justice system, even though they vote, you know, my case is going badly, but I think the system is honest. When you feel it's illegitimate, that justifies all sorts of horrendous behavior, uh, which I really worry about. Okay. Well, guys, I think we're going to be talking about this well into 2024, well into 2025 as well, and maybe even future elections. God help us all. And now the moment you've all been waiting for, it's the lightning round. round. Gentlemen, this is going to be a summertime version of the lightning round. Uh, We're going to ask questions about what you did this summer, since this is our last show of the summer. So first question to the three of you, is this your favorite season? Which is it? Winter, summer, spring, or fall? John? Summer. Summer? HR? Hey, I got to go with summer. More More time with grandchildren. Neil? Oh, spring is is preferable uh, insofar as it exists in the United States in its pristine uh, British variant. The problem with summer is as it wanes, I get these feelings of melancholy and it's already kicking in in late August. Uh, the shadows lengthen, the nights draw in and uh the the shades of the of the prison gate begin to to close in no i much prefer spring i'm also struggling with the phenomenon of the american summer as a place uh, as a time when one's children vanish into something called camp uh an institution invented as yes. far as i can see <laughs> to free american parents from their children when one most wants to see them. So no, I'm with spring. <laughs> well, Neil, I want to see you in London soon. I'll make sure I give you a nice cuddle to make you feel better. Yeah. Neil, I, Neil, I hear Sinatra's summer I hear Sinatra's summer wind playing while you're talking about how summer makes you melancholy. My my vote goes to fall because the temperatures are cooler, the leaves are changing and playoff baseball. All right, gentlemen, can you recommend a movie? Can you recommend a movie, TV show, or a book that you enjoyed over the past three months? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first on a book. I, I'm, I'm reading. I'm get, having the opportunity to to take a trip to Europe here soon, and and so I'm, I'm reading the Middle Kingdom, which is a, a, a new history of uh, of of Eastern Europe. Okay, Neil. I think I I may have mentioned already that I on on a previous episode that I immersed myself in American Prometheus, uh, the Bird Irwin biography of Robert Oppenheimer, on which the bulk, bulk blockbuster movie is based. I haven't gone to the movie. 
Uh, I have read the book. It's a fantastic book, a masterpiece of of biography, and I highly recommend it. I have immersed myself in the last couple of months in reading the uh, technical literature on monetary theory of the last uh, 10 years to catch up on, and I heartily recommend that our listeners do not uh, follow my lead. I am going to go lowbrow here, and I want the camera to focus on Neil Ferguson to get the disgusted look on his face. I went to see Barbie a couple nights ago. Uh, I figured it's made a billion dollars in the box office. Look at those disgusted looks. I may lose my Hoover chevrons for this. It's actually, gentlemen, a very clever movie. And if you make it to the last 10 minutes, is a very smart, nuanced message about the relationships between men and women. So don't don't prejudge. And I hope I'm on the show next week after I said that. (laughs) (laughs) This is a terrible confession. (laughs) It might, might bring Neil out of his melancholy. If he go, if he goes with all that pink, and you're wearing a pink shirt too today. Ooh, well, well. Said. I think it'd be it'd be only appropriate if if you uh, if you went to store. Maybe, maybe I'm a Barbie fan, and I'm just in denial about it. <laughs> all of us pointy heads should do more to understand American popular culture. So, kudos to you. Thank you, John. All right, and by the way, John, it was right around the corner from your house. I didn't didn't I didn't have the heart to knock on the door to see if you wanted to go with me. <laughs> you should have. Guys' trip to go see Barbie would have been great fun. Exactly. All right, gentlemen, final question. What was your crowning summertime achievement? Let's start with you, John, because sadly you're sitting in Texas right now where the winds were not blowing your way. Oh, they were yesterday. I uh, I won a day at the uh, open class uh, contest here in Uvalde. So that was that was a fun achievement. Okay. HR, your summertime achievement? It's gliders. I guess that wasn't clear. I, I flew <laughs> gliders faster than the other guys flying gliders out here. Okay. Well, Actually, I, 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 just, I had fun and I procrastinated a little bit on, on this manuscript I'm supposed to deliver here soon. <laughs> so my achievement was having some fun and some procrastination. Now I'm paying for it, Bill. Okay. Neil, your summertime achievement, besides the fact you survived the summer, given that everything is going on in your world right now? You know, it wasn't really my achievement. It was... My five-year-old son, Campbell, caught fish. First, he caught uh, a bass in a lake, uh, and then he caught a striped bass uh, in the sea uh, off uh, New England. And the look on his face as he reeled in that striper was the highlight of my summer by far. The highlight of my summer was my uh, July spent in South Carolina in the company of my sister's grandsons, my grandnephews. These are wonderful little boys between the ages of seven and four. Um, a couple of points about this. Number one, God has been cruel to me. I've been blessed with a dad bod, but not dad muscles. And Neil can relate to this. You put four boys in the pool, everybody wants to get thrown in the air. That gets very old very fast. <laughs> Point number two at this age, they're really kind of coming into their own and they're becoming very intellectually curious about things. So they're asking a lot of very fun, clever questions. And then point number three, I respect the three of you even more having spent time in the company because you all are not just brilliant scholars, but you are wonderful dads. I have not been blessed with bringing a child into this world. I can only imagine the joy that three of you have had raising children, giving them the love and the support that they need to go on and have wonderful lives. So I salute the three of you and I salute our audience as well for sticking with us. Uh, It's very funny in the summertime when we go on breaks, you guys get very worried about us and ask where we are. We appreciate that. We also look forward to your input on that note. I think our next episode is going to be a mailbag show. We want to get your questions. So you'll probably be getting a uh, video from me very soon asking for your questions to the good fellows with a lot we have not talked about in the last uh, month or so. So uh, keep in mind what you want to ask Neil, John, and HR, and that'll be in early September. 
So on the behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll be back soon with new content. Until then, take care. Thanks again for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.